fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help unite our nation. The cry for freedom as only sport can do. Pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism withheld and allotted only. Nobody's nobody's, nobody's calling. Nobody, nobody, nobody's nobody, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society here on June 28th. Uh, this is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. I was just mentioning that I'm kind of that combination of tired and caffeine high. So we'll see if I talk too fast and stumble over my words today. But how about you? I, I'm hanging in there. I'm uh, a little lethargic this morning, but I can uh, hopefully feel my energy coming back as we talk here. So, you know, uh, maybe it's appropriate we're going to talk about aging as I feel a bit like an old man this morning. So, you know. It, it's amazing how easy it is to feel like an old man. It's like so readily available. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that uh, partly the people that you and I look up to are old uh, old dudes. So, you uh-huh. know, uh, you know, it's uh, uh it's only I think we're uh, we're even encouraged ourselves to uh to feel the oldness in some ways. Indeed, and expediting white maleness for some reason, which makes me think, like, why on earth is that a thing I'm pursuing? But I think I might be. (laughs) Yeah. Well, tell me, what uh, have you been paying attention to, man? A couple things. One is the NBA, and I would imagine you might have some thoughts on that as well. Mm -hmm. Is that true? That is true, yeah. So for now, I'll just say that I'm worried about it. And it it has me uh, feeling a little bit concerned, a little bit disconcerted, and a little bit skeptical. And it leaves me in a place where you and I often wind up of like, what are we doing and why are we doing it? So I might let you talk more about the specifics, but I'll just throw that, throw out that out there as something that's on my mind. Kind of a niche story that stuck out to me this week, and I don't know why it got so much of my attention, but it was Under Armour is attempting to get out of their contract with UCLA. Hmm. I don't know if you saw this. No. I guess the oddness of that story is what intrigued me in the first place, and then it was also the numbers that were behind it. So Under Armour is currently under a $280 million contract with UCLA. Hmm. And so it feels like a really good journalistic question uh, and also a historical question, and then it's also a very social-cultural question for me. Um, it seems to kind of like tap all of those things. So to try and like break it down very quickly is Under Armour uh, two years ago uh, signed this contract with UCLA and they paid $15 million upfront on day one for the right to the contract. Hmm. And then the contract necessitates them to pay UCLA $11 million a year. And they also add in $8 million a year in clothing and shoes and whatever else. And then $2 million a year are set aside for uh, facility improvements. Hmm. I guess all of that, as if this construct needed to be blown up anymore, I don't think it does, but uh, 
that just sounds like a professional space, right? Amateurism in college is uh, laughably far away. And it also seems to accentuate what we already agree on so, so much. And so I'm just like adding fuel to a fire that's already raging. But how could athletes not get paid under a contract like that? Um, that, that that much money is being generated and that that much money is being tossed into an entity and yet those that are responsible for the labor and for being the ones on television with the Under Armour symbol on, uh, that they're not getting paid is kind of mind-blowing mm-hmm. um, when you think about that much money. That is accentuated even more by the fact that UCLA Athletics um, is in debt. And they went as far as last year borrowing $9 million from the university itself. So I assume they're, I don't know how university finances work exactly, but I would imagine they're borrowing like on an endowment or something like that. Hmm. And they were on pace to uh, lose even more money this year and we're going to have to borrow more. Uh, And it's also interesting that the reason that is is because the football team is terrible or at least not doing well recently. And so the football team not doing well means that every other sport at the university suffers. Um, And I find that interesting in light of the UCLA gymnastics team garnering so much national attention recently, Mm. um, both for individual performances and how they're kind of – from what I can gather, kind of changing the sport a little bit, kind of adding a little, um, I'm sure someone that's into gymnastics would be like, what are you talking about? But uh, they seem to be just getting out of kind of a uh, a very rigid formula in kind of changing what the sport looks like and the judges are responding to it and they won the national championship because of it. Um, all that to say, I, I, I kind of just look at it and say like, what are we doing? <laughs> What are we doing that this is the state of college sports in America? And as if, like I already said, like we know it's kind of seemingly out of control, but when I read this story, it, it, it seems really out of control. Um, and I guess the last piece that's interesting to me is that um, I think it was Matt Barnes. He was the UCLA guy that had a really long NBA career that just retired, mm-hmm. I think. Um he was like, good riddance. He's like, Under Armour stuff is crap. Like, no one wants to play in Under Armour stuff, which I also found interesting. Um, <laughs> so all of it together, it, it was just an intriguing story and kind of raised that question of, like, what are we doing in college sports in America? Yeah, wow. A lot to unpack there. Yeah, it's, it's so dense that it's just kind of like, I feel like that's the story of it. It's like, this is an example of like how much can be gleaned from just one simple headline. Well, and I think, you know, I think the thing that comes away from me is that debt question. Because uh, the other stuff in some ways is like, I feel like we kind of knew all of that. And it's still shocking and still ridiculous. But, you know... Mm-hmm. Uh, the debt question is really interesting, particularly, you know, I think about, um, you mentioned gymnastics, but also, I mean, their softball team is routinely one of the best softball teams in the right. country. Uh, right. and it makes me think about how things were different, uh, 40, 50 years ago mm-hmm. in those minor sports, were they more fiscally sustainable when they didn't have, 
like football to rely on as a a major thing and like Mm -hmm. what are the expenses how expensive are these minor programs uh Mm -hmm. you know we've seen um there's been a bit of a movement to shut down uh track and field programs um uh, at some of these major universities and what does that mean like why why track and field was that a particularly expensive sport does it not generate revenue what is it that makes it as a target for that and i'm just intrigued to know like sustainability wise you know there what there there would seem to be a point maybe there they've always been university subsidized but it seemed very like it wasn't uncomfortable at some point to do that i mean and you look at some place like center um center college you know they're certainly not making any money for the school right on ticket revenue or anything so right. how do you – I mean, there's got to be a, a, a financial model that works somewhere in there. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, and I, I, in that context, I would re- be interested uh, to learn more about how university administrators talk about it in meetings. Mm-hmm. And when I say it, what I mean is uh, how important image is and how they put a – number on that image so i think of like the ucla softball team i would imagine it costs a whole lot of money um Mm -hmm. and softball teams play a whole lot of games and they travel all over the country and they often will play um over two days when they travel and so that means like hotels for a Mm -hmm. night or two for a whole team and I, i you like asking the question like why you know, I go to U of L softball games a lot, and there are maybe like a hundred people there. Uh, and I, I guess I would imagine playing on ESPN in the World Series uh, does create a lot of revenue, and there probably are a lot of eyes on the UCLA and Under Armour logo in those situations. But it's also, I, I, I guess, the only justification I can come up with in my mind, and maybe I'm ignorant about some things here, is that having these minor sports teams is about like maintaining an image of what students expect when they get to college and what um, I don't know the outside world expects for a tier one university to look and act like. Well, and it's also complicated. I mean, I Title Nine is a very good thing, but. Um, you know, you know, part of the reason they're spending so much on softball is because they have to match expenses with the male sports uh, in mm-hmm. some ways. And so, like, you almost have to spend that much because you know you're going to waste a bunch of money on football and basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing to think about and just how unsustainable it all feels is really, I think, the prime takeaway for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the last thing I would say is like that we haven't even mentioned academics yet. No. And so like how all of these things work together with the fact that these are not uh, hedge funds; these are academic institutions, <laughs> right? So I that it, college sports is mind blowing uh, right now. I I don't. I'm sure it's been that way for a long time, but uh, what's happening to colleges in America kind of. Um, is seemingly really hard to understand and grasp what's happening. Well, yeah, and I have to say that, you know, coming from a very small D3 school, that there was something kind of charming about it, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, these really were student-athletes. I mean, like, uh, they were there to get the education, and that just so happened that they could continue to play the sport 
while they were there as well. You know, and mm-hmm. they, we were in classes with them, and they had to work just as hard as anybody else did um, right. to get through. So, you know, there's something, there's a way it feels like it can be a fun and exciting thing. I mean, and, you know, at a place like Center, where, you know, something like 20 to 30% of the people played intercollegiate sports, you know, it's a significant percentage. Um, mm-hmm. And there's something to say for, you know, a healthy balance in life and what that teaches you and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's certainly not the same model we see at bigger institutions. Right. Yeah, that's well said. Hmm. What about you? What was in in your mind's eye? Um, so, a lot of things uh, as well. You know, probably chief among them, the NBA stuff as well. Just thinking about what a disaster it's going to be. Um, mm-hmm. I had a buddy who um, suggested his guess would be that there will be six games played. Um, mm-hmm which sounds about right at this point. Um, I mean, we saw 15 players test positive in the first round of testing, um, mm-hmm. which is, a, I think, like a 5% um, of the of the people that they tested. Um, so, I mean, I just, I, it's unfathomable to me that they're going to be able to work this out, particularly as we see Florida just kind of going crazy at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um and and so I don't see any way it's going to be a successful thing. And I, I think building off of that, it was it's interesting to see how other folks are responding. You know, there's even some talk about the WNBA not playing at all, um, mm-hmm. uh, which would be fascinating. Uh, and then to see uh, Malcolm Jenkins going on CNN and talking about how football is in some ways the definition of a non-essential business. Yeah. Um, and like thinking about how much more complicated football would be even than mm-hmm. basketball is going to be. Yeah. Um, it's just, I cannot fathom uh, this working particular. I mean, I think we've seen, you know, NASCAR, um, uh, golf are like low contact things that can kind of happen. But mm-hmm. these other contact sports, there's just no way you're going to be on the field and not have it be a problem. Right. Yeah, it raises that fascinating fascinating question of how many positive tests are too many. Mm-hmm. And or if LeBron James tests positive, what that means uh, for the plans at large. So well, like yeah. who, who, whose health is more valuable? Well, I think that that's the part that we haven't talked about in all this stuff is, you know, we can go back and we can make this work, right? But mm-hmm. what's going to happen when in the playoffs, inevitably, there's someone that tests positive, and that team, or at least you know a couple of players on that team, have to pull out, mm-hmm. uh, and it now changes the whole. Uh, it is no longer uh, a playoffs in the way that we think about the playoffs because there are teams that are not, um, not part of it. So you know, I'm just. You know, and if that happens to be LeBron, the Lakers, or Giannis, someone on the Bucks, or whatever, then the whole mm-hmm. thing is now not uh, an accurate representation of the season anymore. And what does it matter? Like, what's the point of going back when the chances of that happening, I have to think, are above fifty percent? Mm-hmm. I just had a sci-fi version of taking that to the extreme. I guess just like trying to make a point about it of like what would it look like to put Steph Curry in a literal bubble until like the championship 
right? Or or something like that. Of take your best player and say like you are in quarantine and we're until we're in the finals. Yeah. And you are not coming out. And that being like, okay, NBA, what do you value? Why are you why are you doing this? Uh and is it for entertainment? Is it for money? Is it for the players to win championships? What what are you doing and why are you doing it? You know. Hmm. Oh my yeah. well I'll also um just mention briefly that you know, we have said some positive things about Novak Djokovic on here recently, but this guy uh, is just so stupid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I think it's also uh, it's revealing of some things. The way this has played out is revealing of some of the situations that exist in the world. You know, some of the stuff about his parents coming out to defend him and, like, you know how many parents would do the same thing for their for people that they've invested so much of their life in, and mm-hmm. you know it's just such a weird, uh, weird world. Um, and these people live in such weird bubbles that, in some ways, like I don't judge him too harshly because I think um, he's probably lived in this bubble his entire life and didn't think that there was any risk associated with what he was doing because his advisors or whoever mm-hmm. suggested it was a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but come on, folks, you got to be smarter than that. I think uh, of all the images and things that I've read about it, the one that alarmed me the most were the videos of all the players in a club, like seemingly, <laughs> like literally doing like, kardashian club life uh like holding microphones and yelling and dancing shirtless and there was a massive crowd in the club and i my brain was completely baffled because it has like the coronavirus expectations for social behavior and then seeing that from a professional athlete was so confounding and confusing yeah, and for those that don't know what happened, he uh, he hosted a series of tournaments, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. and they had these wild parties afterwards. And now he and a number of other people associated with it have tested positive uh, for the virus, unsurprisingly. So yeah, um, and it's been a fascinating blame game to go around. So his mm-hmm. parents blamed uh Gregor Dimitri Dimitrov, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which is just like, come on. Really, right. really, folks. Right. Yep. Yes, there was someone that brought it there, but you invited all of these people to come there, folks. Exactly. Yeah, and we're playing soccer games and doing photo shoots and yeah, yeah. Terrible decision. Yes. Well, you want to talk about our main topic today? Yeah. What? Uh, what is the topic and what made you want to talk about it? Yeah, so um, uh, I suggested we talk about aging and how sports changes our or impacts our view of aging or, or um, understanding of it. Uh, this is coming largely from a time when I am rather shocked by how willing large parts of the population seem to be to just sacrifice anyone over the age of 70 to this virus and say, well, we got to keep moving forward, even if we lose these folks. Um, and I just, I'm in, you know, from a sociological perspective, I'm intrigued to know why. Um, but, uh, from a personal perspective, I'm just kind of, uh, disturbed. And I, it's not a new thing that I think 
you know, I don't know how much you follow the world of um, culture, but apparently on TikTok right now, our generation being the millennials is being totally shellacked by Generation Z behind us for being weird and out of touch in the same way that we have uh, talked about boomers that way. Um, Mm. And so it's just, I am intrigued by the whole thing. I think sports plays a heavy role in kind of how we understand aging and, uh, and the human body in some ways and value from it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of like the central question for me. And I, I think in you saying that it, it, uh, points to me how valuable I find it to ask the question what sort of messages we're getting. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes this question so enjoyable to dig into and also so important to dig into is that the messaging from the sports world about aging, um, like many other things, can kind of be all over the place. And that there's a whole lot of messages mm-hmm. and it it at the granular zoomed in level, there's a bunch of messages. And then if we zoom way out, there's a bunch of messages. And I I think that gets me to your point about it being a sociological question and also a historical question of like, what, what are we saying about the elderly in our current moment? And how does that contrast or compare to what future generations have thought about the elderly? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like going all the way back literally to, um, you know, some of the early, earliest civilizations. And in some ways, I, I feel like that's where there is a crossover with the sports world because so much of the the athletic experience of the human body and how we organize around that uh, is kind of an ancient thing in a lot of ways or, or something timeless that we have always done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's very important to kind of, for me to point out here at the beginning, I think how much of a Western conversation this is Mm -hmm. Uh, because I think that culturally there are massive differences between how cultures understand aging and how they look at it. Um, I think what we'll be discussing today is largely uh, an American perspective on it. Would uh, Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I have to admit that I hadn't even really thought about it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Yeah. Well, what has stood out to you as you've started to think about it? Well, I think, you know, there's kind of conflicting messages in some ways. But also I think... Um, a lot of it, I think the predominant message that I would kind of start with is this idea that um, as you age, you lose value, um, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of this core sentiment that we hear about all the time and it's normalized by sports that so-and-so is you know, in their prime or so-and-so is just past their prime. And so, you know, when, when you extrapolate that kind of language to a broader perspective, you know, and anyone that's over the age of 35 or 40 is is past their prime. How do we understand that? But then I think there's also an interesting conversation about um, athletes in post uh, post career uh, careers. So you mm-hmm. know, thinking about Shaq and Charles on TNT mm-hmm. and stuff like this. Um, but how rare that is. Um, and you know how stardom seems to exist beyond, but not for the regular athletes. So you know those mm-hmm. those uh, you know Aaron McKee from the 76ers teams back in the day 
like he is just seemingly gone from the landscape um, mm-hmm. because he got to a point where he couldn't perform in the way that was valuable anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's really interesting stuff from, even from a player perspective, I think we see a lot of players that really struggle with that, like not being able to do what they did before because so much of their value was based on what they could do with their body. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's fascinating, but also um, I, I do wonder whether or not that trend is something that um, uh, is as pervasive as we think it is um, and how based it is by sport. You know, I think um, cricket is an interesting one for me because we see guys that can play for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um and so, but that's also coming from a culture where I think you appreciate um, age and wisdom a little bit more than we perhaps do in our culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'm just intrigued by the whole conversation and how it shifts depending upon where we look. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of things in that that I came across as well and had very similar thoughts. Um, to the point of Shaquille O'Neal and Charles Barkley and that they have kind of created this throne for themselves Mm -hmm. uh, at TNT. I think it is the extreme example of what is really normal, and that is the one message we get about aging from the sports world is that it is the older voices that we hear while we're watching the younger ones. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's it's the younger bodies that we gaze upon, but as we gaze upon those bodies, it is the older voices that tell us what to think about mm-hmm. what we're seeing. And it also means that they're the ones that get to decide what is good and what is bad and get to help inform us or at least get like the first chance to tell us what we should think about what we're watching. And so that gets to the space of like, games changing or the nature of how games are played changing and the old guard getting to say uh, if that's good or bad. And so I guess the ultimate message maybe then is that uh, goodness and badness is decided by an old guard that has achieved some sort of authority. And so I, I feel like what would be interesting to dig into there is how that authority is achieved And then to what extent that authority is warranted and kind of look at like maybe patterns and themes and ways in which that authority is being exercised or exploited or swayed in certain directions to um, give certain voice to certain things. Yeah, but I, and I want to, I think it's even a little more complicated and nuanced in some ways, because I think that um, we also see that Shaq and, Charles are very much the um, exception in terms of being able to hang on for as long as they have. Mm-hmm. That a lot of these um, post-career commentators or whatever, they have a ten-year window kind of thing after they retire, in which they are relevant to talk about things. But then ESPN or TNT will bring in someone that's got more current clout and resonance. Resonance. Um, and replaces them in some ways. And so it's interesting, like how the, they, the, the media feels the need to keep up with that, but also kind of look backwards because I think, you know, the fandom is always a little bit, um, 
behind where the league is in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, there's certainly like you know, watching Isaiah Thomas on um, on NBA TV is just painful. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you know, and I think we're getting to the end for somebody like Reggie Miller, uh, you know, who is great, but I think is going to become less relevant and they're going to find somebody new. And you've got your Chris Webbers there stepping in uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So I, this also got me to the point of thinking about the NBA in particular. And I, I don't think there's a, another league that is as close or as mm-hmm. powerful as the NBA is in the sense of, the potential for these younger athletes to push culture and to change culture and that we use older men to tell us about these younger men pushing culture seems like a paradigm that needs some shifting and some changing. So it already gets me to a place of like asking like, what is that? What is that dynamic that, um, we value seniority in so many spaces in society and to what extent is that seniority earned or worth it or valuable or something we should be thinking about. Um, This got me into an article that was written by a writer named Will Leitch in New York Magazine. Hmm. And he made a really insightful point that I don't think I had truly thought about, but he essentially says that one consequence of the analytics and data-based decision-making that's overwhelming the sports world is that what the data is saying is more valuable than seniority Mm -hmm. is pure athletic skill. And the NBA, I think, uh, again, was like the first one in on that. Of like, it's not necessarily about signing a veteran for experience in the playoffs, and that might be kind of a myth, actually. Uh, that in reality, if you have like five kind of experienced but still young, really powerful, really quick, really strong, really agile, uh, really basketball-minded youth uh, players, you're you're probably going to increase your chances. Hmm. Um, so I think that brings in a part to me of like. Um, how archaic baseball still is in some ways despite their biometric revolution is that um, I don't know Um, I I think of like the last three years of players on their second or third contract and how much money they're getting paid to do so very little Uh, but what the team paid for is the first six years on that 10 year Mm. contract and how like, what is that? How did they get themselves in that place? But again, back to the central question, it kind of sends out this message of like a society valuing seniority or someone that's like put in their time, so to speak. Um, and that that is something we value, someone putting in their time. Well, I think that that's interesting because I do, I do think that that's somewhat unique to baseball in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and I think that there's kind of, what I'm thinking about now is that there's kind of two, um, what we're what we're almost seeing and describing in my mind comes down to like there's kind of two levels of post career success in some ways. Like you can become the revered um, ex player type position, um, or you can kind of fade away because you're no longer of interest to anybody, um, mm-hmm. and you become a high school coach 
somewhere struggling to reclaim whatever they had right uh before uh and it's just interesting kind of how that i mean and there's a very clear divide in terms of you know how much more likely you are as a white guy to become a coach um mm-hmm. or or whatever um but it's also interesting you know how much of that comes down to ownership stuff and so owners may like in those positions want those people with seniority um but they also um are going to pay the people that bring the talent to the game in some way so it's an interesting dichotomy there and in, in that conversation and so like and i think it's also interesting just in terms of how much the conversation about how much coaching matters is a mm-hmm. question at this point uh and in some places it very clearly matters in other places it doesn't you know i guess i'll go back to that um to go back to the cricket example watching um the the mumbai uh indians uh series that we watched and talked about mm-hmm. uh and how bad and uh, missing the coaching was from that and yet that team is still fairly successful in fact they won the their league the year after that documentary was shot mm-hmm. um and it's so like and then to juxtapose that with something like where the nba where we just these heroes of coaching and our, our icons and greg popovich everyone agrees that he and rick carlisle get more out of their players than other coaches do mm-hmm. um yeah or contrasting the trope of like the old wise and men guiding these uh, youth that are in mm-hmm. desperate need of an old wise and man uh, with someone like Brad Stevens. Um, is that his name? Yeah. You're Brad Stevens. Yeah, He's also Brad Stevens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or at least any moment in sports, it happens a lot when a young coach comes along and it's not that uh, he or she is a great coach. It's that they're the youngest coach is what like, kind of mm-hmm. makes the storyline. And so it, it, the message comes across that like age matters in coaching a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, in that a youthful coach is going to go about the world of coaching different than the old wise and man would. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to get into this idea of how was I going to bring it up? I kind of forget what I was going to bring up now. Um, I guess how we think about retirement and what mm-hmm. sports tell us about the concept of retirement. And again, there's like some, there's a lot of messages I think that we can glean from the sports world about it. But I think one of the more ubiquitous ones is that retirement is something to kind of be feared mm. for the athlete or for someone that shares an athlete the professional athlete's mindset or adopts it for themselves or as a culture at large. And I'm thinking of like recent things that have come across uh, our purview, so to speak, is one is Michael Jordan um, and how he came across as as a post-basketball player. But then I also, um, HBO has the documentary series 24-7 and they two of the episodes, one was on Lindsey Vaughn and one was on Kelly Slater. So kind of minor sports, Lindsey Vaughn being a skier and Kelly Slater being a surfer in the context of like the American sports world. But nonetheless, two really well-known names. Mm-hmm. And both of them, I feel like, were subjects of the documentary because they were at the end of their careers and their bodies were failing. 
And what made them stand out in lesser-known sports was how much, how far above their competition they were. And mm-hmm. that what made them interesting documentary subjects is that their identity was tied to that fact. And that in retirement and in their bodies failing them, what was happening was an identity sort of existential crisis. And I wonder about the messaging of that, of like what sort of... Um, what is it in there that we're adopting for ourselves as individuals and as culture as a culture? But then it also had me thinking about ways in which that can be exploited. Mm. And I feel like this might be the space where there is a tie-in with a culture obsessed with anti-aging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it gets even more layered, I think, when a lot of the anti-aging messaging that is sent out into the world is that be active, be athletic, be sporting. And that be the way to fight against death, uh, the inevitable end of, for all of us. So within that, there's a lot of mi- mixed messaging. And that it can be exploited seems to make it all the more significant to kind of understand and think about. Yeah, it's. I think it's fascinating to think about that and just, you know, uh, how much that identity. And even, you know, I mean, we mentioned these professional athletes, but how many folks are hung up on a peak and a high school sport or a, right. a collegiate sport um, that they never were able to replicate that in any other aspect of their society. And it's hindered them from being able to be the people that they could be um, in some ways. And, you know, um, particularly, you know, I, I'm intrigued by something um, like golf where you don't really have, retirement retirement in some mm-hmm. ways and mm-hmm. so you see these guys on the champions tour i mean i think about what hal hal irvin is that his name um hal irwin hal irwin yeah this guy went on the champions tour and like had a, my understanding anyway and you would know this better than i do is that he had a, a, a modest normal career um yeah. and then he went on the champions tour and like totally dominated there for several years mm-hmm. um and like that the, that's such an interesting thing to think about is, you know, what made him feel the need to do that. And, you know, surely as a modestly successful professional golfer, you don't have to go play on the champions tour every week. Um, right. But yet he felt the need. And so many of these other guys on that tour feel the need to go out there and prove themselves again and again and again. Right. Uh, and there's like, you juxtapose that with someone like, Jack Nicholas or these guys, uh, Arnold Palmer that became these legends and they didn't need that on some right. level. They could, they could live in that. Uh, but for all of the 99% of athletes that don't re- achieve that legend status, that they're right. just stuck trying to recreate that, that moment, uh, of right. before. Right. So I was thinking about this just yesterday because Phil Mickelson was in the lead starting the third round at the Travelers Championship. And in his group was a guy named Will Gordon who just turned 23. And Phil uh, just turned 50. So technically Phil can play on the Champions Tour right now. And so a 50-year-old man playing with a 23-year-old youth or boy as they like literally kept calling him (laughs) yesterday – uh, it was weird how they were talking about it. Um, but at any rate, yeah, not only that, but like 
feel uh, is better at golf than him at, at 50 and Will mm-hmm. Gordon at 23. And part of it is that Phil has more wisdom and knowledge of how to negotiate around golf courses. And then also um, incorporating the like the nerve aspect or the mental side of the game. Um, you know, Phil's played tens of thousands of rounds of professional golf and Will Gordon's played like 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what that means, especially in a sport where the mental side of it is so important and the nerves are such a huge part of it. But I think what really stands out to me is, uh, and back to, it's to the messaging question, is like when we're watching sports and we're watching an, an older athlete play against a younger athlete, it is so normal to hear them talk about that, mm-hmm. that that is a storyline. And it also, it often is like, uh, voiced or expressed in this way of like when so-and-so was born, uh, so-and-so had mm-hmm. already won eight titles. And I'm like, I so I was, was trying to stop and think to myself, like what what are we saying or what is interesting about that story? Why is that compelling? And that is where I think uh, I'm, I may be taking it way too far, but I, I think it gets to like some really big ancient questions of kind of like how we think about mortality and how mortality or the pursuit of like Greek God immortality is kind of ever present uh, and that it's a force that's always around us. And that I guess another way to say it is like all of us are constantly in existential dread (laughs) And like constantly aware that we're going to die, but we don't talk about it. Mm. And so I kind of think what makes that storyline compelling, because I can't deny that I find it compelling. It like gets my attention when I see someone that's been around a really long time playing against someone that's brand new. So like Venus Williams versus Coco Golf, Like that storyline is interesting to me. And I, I think it's the f- what makes it interesting is the fact that we all walk around knowing we're going to die, but we don't really talk about it. And so Mm -hmm. this is like almost a euphemism or a way to talk about that and be interested in that reality (laughs) of our experience here uh, that is like palatable and easy to to digest. Yeah. But I think it's, uh, I think that's a really good point. And I think it, uh, it's fascinating because I think it also works on the other side too. So in some ways, what we're seeing is that, uh, and I think what we've been describing here in some ways is that in the sports world, like uh, you're both diminished as a younger athlete, you know, um, and then you're diminished as an older athlete. And so there's mm-hmm. this time, kind of the messaging, I think, in some ways is, you know, this time from when you're 30 to 40, you have this wisdom because you've participated in this game long enough, you're, you know a little bit about life. And you, but you can still perform. But then once you hit 40, it's just a downhill till death. Uh, and mm-hmm. like you said, we don't talk about it. But we both um, look down on people that are too young because they haven't had the experience. They don't really understand the threat of death coming towards them. Uh, but that when you're in that like 25 to 40 range, we can be like, okay, you are now the peak of what you're ever going to be. And anybody is going to reach the peak of what they're going to be during that time and then mm-hmm. everything after that is just a struggle to recreate it and so we have to put down those before then so they don't realize that they they can they can have those moments over i, I don't know i think there's some really interesting um ways that we construct that but that at the end of the day we 
uh, it's uh, extending this message in some way that those are the best years of our lives and everything else is, is going to be uh, uh, either before or after is not good enough. And so it's that piece of it. I, if I could like hone in on one thing there that is so fascinating and that being the concept of someone being in their prime mm -hmm. or at their peak and what is so like Greek drama tragedy about it is that you you don't know until afterward. Mm -hmm. The individual and the public, so the audience and the person on stage, both don't know if it's the prime or not. And so I think that's what makes a Roger Federer winning a title at 38 so compelling, is it's like pushing against our expectations of prime and pushing against like what we find like... A, a mere mortal would do, right? It's like Federer becomes even more immortal and more Greek godlike. Mm -hmm. And that's what draws our eyes is that we're like, wow, that is just, he's going against so many norms and expectations and that's why we're watching. And he's also still doing it beautifully. And so it, it, it keeps our gaze, it keeps our attention. Well, that's really fascinating too. And I think it, it also juxtaposes against what we... Um, as the rest of society feel um, mm -hmm. and like, cause I think that that's a very strong storyline of, Hey, this guy is 38. Uh, and it's amazing that he can still perform in that way. And what kind mm -hmm. of pressure does that put on someone like right. you and I who are approaching that age? And I think would argue that we uh, don't think we're reached our peak in any way, shape or form. Right. Um, and yet that narrative of, you know, it's kind of a downhill thing. You need to be struggling. You're going to be fighting and scrapping for anything at this point. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think is a narrative that uh, we are probably being feeling pushed on us all the time uh, as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. And so the, again, it, back to the messaging question becomes like, is the message that goes out into the world from the sports world that there is a prime and there is a peak? And if that's the message, how we feel about that? And mm -hmm. I think my first response is, uh, that's crap. <laughs> like, I, like, what a terrible way to live with the dread that you may always be in your peak. Mm -hmm. As a, that's like so anti-Buddhist. Um, not that I can claim to be a Buddhist, but at least an admirer of the value of noticing moments and noticing living in the now and that there doesn't have to be a prime or a peak that, um, that is a construct that fits within capitalism mm -hmm. really nicely. Um, and it's, it's a shame too. I think that's what like, again, makes the Lindsay Vaughn and Kelly Slater documentaries compelling is that where the documentary almost exploits their dread at having to face the reality that they're on the downside of their prime and of their peak. And I think, like, what a horrible thing to put in a human's mm -hmm. brain. <laughs> like, that's not fair. And it connects it with your original point of, like, to what extent does a society value the elderly? Well, I, I think I also juxtapose it with something that you and I both uh, love, which is, you know, uh, reading and authorship um, and, and how it presents an alternative viewpoint of that. We see these incredible art uh, authors that write life-changing works at 24, 25, uh, but we also see artists that are coming to their fore for the first time after a full career doing something else at 60 mm -hmm. and 70 years old. Um, right. 
and I think it's um, uh, I, that's a vision that I much prefer. And it's still challenging because I think there's an element of, you know, are you ever going to recreate what you create that first time? And, you know, it's 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 still anxiety inducing in many ways, but it at least sheds the label that um, you have a peak. And I think it also in, perhaps encourages people to think complexly about what peak mm-hmm. means uh, in right. terms of, you know, you know, that Shaq had a, had a peak on the court as a basketball player. He's also had a peak potentially maybe he's a long way from it uh, or he will mm-hmm. have a peak as a businessman. He'll also have a peak as a commentator. Um, and, you know, in the same way, you know, I will have a peak as a student. There'll be a point when I'm the best father that I'm going to be. There's going to be a point when I know the most information and I, I, I'm the best podcaster or whatever, you know, right. that uh, we each go through multiple peaks and that there's not just one. You have to learn to, uh, adjust your expectations, I suppose, and flow with whatever that new challenge that you're taking on is going to be. Right. Yeah, which makes me think of the Bruce Lee documentary that just aired, which I found found really fascinating. I don't know if you watched it. I have not finished it yet, so I fell asleep because I was watching it at 6 a.m., so I, yeah. I need to go back to it. <laughs> uh, but his, his belief in kind of qualifying of a whole bunch of different spiritual and kung fu traditions mm-hmm. of uh be water um and it, it was a way he thought about his body too actually and the aging that is undeniable in his body and how important his body was for his identity and his career um i had another point i wanted to make oh i I don't know if you remember the story. I, I was thinking of this when you came up with this topic. I think it was a couple of years ago, but there was a French cyclist. Uh, he was 105, and <laughs> um, he holds a record at like um, so. That it's a it's a competition of how far you can ride in an hour mm-hmm. on an indoor track. Yeah. And he holds the record for someone that's like 95, 100, and 105. And what's really fascinating about it is that his times increased over those years. So he actually rode longer uh, and faster at 105 than he did at 95. And the reason was is um, a sports scientist got interested in his story and helped him um, build a training program that uh, was essentially designed for someone that's 105. And the point is, is that like, I I don't think the point of the story is that like you can beat death. And I think that's like one angle that could be exploited in this and inspiring for those that are like seeking peaks. But I think what it does is it kind of busts the peak narrative to some extent in the sense that um, it's, it's, uh, how you approach it is how you understand your body is how you understand who and what you are and why you're doing something. And it's just all the more complex than just saying like how Kelly Slater feels like a failure now every day that he's not like winning the pro circuit. Um, I don't know. It it just kind of busted up the the peak narrative, I think is how I read it. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are, um, I think you're right in that a lot of it for me comes down to the motivation piece. Um, mm-hmm. And like, 
you know, because in some ways I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life, even though uh, arguably I'm past my prime, according mm-hmm. to some of these other folks. Um, and I think that, you know, there's also uh, an argument to be made out there about, you know, all these folks that start running marathons at 50 and 60 years right. old. Um, right. I think that what I often look at in that, uh, and I have to confess to, you know, at least once a year we'll see somebody a video pop up of you know a 102 year old person running a 100 yard right. sprint or something right. like that um, yeah. and it always makes me a little sad because on yeah. one hand i'm like why do you feel like you need to do that um right. but on the other hand if like that's what brings them joy and they're doing it from a from a place of genuine um mm-hmm. whatever that i am i am really thrilled with that that they can find that joy there i just hope it's not coming from a place of i need to be fighting death uh, in this moment, which I think is an underrated and underspoken motivation mm-hmm. for so many. Yeah. So I, I think for me, this got me to a culminating point of um, there was an author I came across um, not too long ago, um, Jeff per, per, uh, Bergovici. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wrote a book called Play on the New Science of Elite Performance at Any Age. And he has a concept that he learned about. It wasn't his, but it's the concept of movement quality hmm. and how uh, within the sports science world and in uh, athletic physical training world, often what athletic trainers and physical therapists will talk about is movement quality as opposed to like speed and strength and achievement. And I just really love that hmm. uh, is that um, – valuing like how we move our bodies or how we watch someone else move their bodies as opposed to it being um, dominating or winning or overpowering, mm-hmm. but rather um, movement quality. And he points to two people that I think both of us like really admire and enjoy watching that being Roger Federer and Steph Curry um, that, and I, if I were to go in the golfing world, I would say, like, I admire, like, Jim Furyk's movement mm-hmm. quality. And I find it very fascinating that Jim Furyk leads the PGA Tour in fairways hit percentage and greens and regulation percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's 53. And so as the game has become about hitting it as far as you can, and I look at uh, Bryce, what Bryson DeChambeau is doing, and I contrast that with Jim Furyk. I'm I'm gonna choose to watch Jim Furyk every time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something like again, even zooming out a little bit, that's like more peaceful and more aesthetically beautiful and compelling about uh, valuing movement quality as opposed to like speed, strength, and domination. Well, I mean, you know, I've always been, um, even though he's underperformed and disappointed me often. Uh, Mesut Ozil has just been yeah. that guy for me. Like he. He seems to float out there, but and I think it even goes back to to take this to like the extreme level. There's something so enjoyable about watching um, uh, a 90 year old uh, Chinese man in a square doing Tai Chi uh, yeah. movements, and like uh, there's something. And in some ways, I want to say that that's that's an athletic accomplishment and being Absolutely. able to do that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, did you have any kind of final thoughts or? 
I don't think so. I, I, I think yeah. it's we've covered a lot of the stuff here, and I am I'm intrigued. I hadn't before we came on. I hadn't thought much about that piece of the younger side and how much we diminish that in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm intrigued by those two juxtaposing perspectives because there is very much a you're not old enough to be good here. Um, mm-hmm. As at the same time, there's also a you're too old to be good here, and those those right. generational divides are really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, on a societal level, I find them very troubling. Um, mm-hmm. The way that we you know the way that millennials have been looked down on but also the way that we look down this i have this okay boomer stuff is not okay with me mm-hmm. um like i find this just really troubling and leads to divisive yeah. things all over the place and so i it, it's just interesting uh to think for me about whether sports is a propagator of that or whether mm-hmm. it's a um reaction to that in some ways mm-hmm. and i have to I think just because of the way sports is, in some ways, it's a propagator of that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Well, what have you got trivia-wise for us? You got an answer for us for last week? Yeah, so last week we asked, um, where I mentioned that Mike Trout signed a 12-year, $465 million contract that pays him 219000 per game. That second, uh, the highest player in MLB makes two hundred and twenty-two thousand per game. And as a hint, uh, they actually, for four out of five games, get paid that without doing anything. <laughs> um, I forget who you guessed. Um, Aaron Judge. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Garrett Cole, pitching for the Yankees, gets paid two hundred twenty-two thousand dollars a game. <laughs> So that means, gosh, he makes a million dollars without doing anything. Yeah, which I have to uh, give a, sh- I have to give a shout out to my buddy Jeff, who texted me when he heard the episode and said he thought it was a trick question. He was pretty sure it was going to be a pitcher or a closer. So uh, there you go, uh, there you Respect. go, Jeff. Well, <laughs> if anybody else wants to guess, uh, we're happy to give you a shout out if you get it right on the air. So uh, feel free. Uh, all right, so. Uh, I tried to come up with one that was maybe uh, more attuned to you. Okay. Um, there are rumors that the first football game at University of Virginia <laughs> was played in 1871 against Washington and Lee. There's no record of that game, but there is speak of it. It was not until 1892 that UVA established the South's oldest rivalry by splitting games with what university? Um. Do you want me to guess now? Or no, you... hang on to okay. it. Maybe talk about I can you talk about your thinking without your guess? Uh well or I'm do pretty you just know. I'm pretty sure I know this one. Okay. Uh, All right. Well then we'll just save it. Yeah. But I'm also <laughs> not certain now that we've started talking about it, but um I think I know. Okay. Um but it's interestingly, right. I, my first reaction when you mentioned the Washington and Lee is how absurd it is that a school named Washington and Lee has announced a diversity campaign to try and attract <laughs> more uh, African-American students. But, um, you know, we don't have to go down that road right now. Just come on, folks. Uh, right. <laughs> Indeed. But interesting. Okay. Well, all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Come back uh, next week and we'll give you the answer there. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this and subscribe. And 
We'll be back next week. Thanks, Kyle. We'll be a week older then, man. We will. Been week more past our prime. Exactly. Either past or heading to our prime. Both are terrifying. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. Attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 calling, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.